Kia ora and welcome to RNZ's Insight Program. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, constructing safe buildings. New Zealand is in the biggest construction boom in its history, but the industry appears to be struggling on virtually every front. The growing pressures are pushing up the risks to company bottom lines and the chances they'll cut corners. I'm here at my home in the Hutt Valley on a sunny Wednesday morning doing something that I really love. Do-it-yourself building work. DIY. I know some of the rules and some of the standards. I know a lot more than when I started. It took quite a few years of making some sometimes pretty big mistakes to get to this point. Mistakes on plans, on prices, on materials and on practices. Mistakes on how I fitted some sometimes critical elements like waterproofing. And then I went to quantity surveyor school for a year and realised just how much I still don't know and how much expertise I still lack. One brutal lesson, where I choose to go cheap on price, I usually end up paying for it down the line. Not to put too fine a point on it, but I reckon my experience in DIY is a little like the New Zealand building industries in microcosm. In a country riven by earthquakes, amid an unprecedented building boom, and where successive governments have favoured industry self-regulation, there's never been a more pressing time to ask the question, what are we building and are we getting it right? Even before this enormous pressure came on, the watchdogs of building quality were scrambling and often coming up short. Now a new attempt is being made to transform what is one of the most crucial and volatile of all industries. Its instigator, the head of the industry's research group Brands, Shalidra Percy, says what the industry is doing is not working and none of the changes made so far are big enough or fast enough. I think you know, what we're, we're dealing with is, is a system that's set up to fail um, and, and not to fail well. In fact, when we do fail, what do we do? We go around trying to find someone to blame, someone to pay for the pain. But even the government regulator, the Building Systems Performance Branch within the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, appears daunted. It says the building system is too complicated. The ministry wants to change the game, yet it could hardly have picked a tougher time to restructure. I'm Phil Pennington, and this insight investigates the prospects for the country breaking free of a cycle not just of boom and bust building, but of chronic and sometimes acute building failure. Okay, so we're looking at the penetrations here in a electrical cupboard, and we're looking at the penetrations that are to be fire-rated coming out of the electrical cupboard into this um, escape route here. Fire protection specialist so Ron Green is taking a quick look around an Auckland building and is not impressed at what he's finding. What we've found here is that we've got some issues, and we've got um, people have used a fire-rated foam, which is not tested for plasterboard, and that's compliant or not compliant? No, definitely not compliant. What would be the effect of it um, in a fire? In this case, the, the fire would bend through the cables and then bend through to the side of the wall. Ron Green is an independent qualified person, licensed by councils to issue building warrants of fitness. In the building's plant room, Ron Green shows me where a support carrying electrical cables goes straight through a firewall, with no attempt made to seal around it at all, the perfect path for smoke and flames. 
He says this type of breach of regulations is very common and he comes across examples every week. Yeah, I, I've just looked at a, a photographs of a building that I'm about to be involved in and it's just yeah, shoddy, just people not completing walls. I've seen it myself. You know, people say they have quality assurance, but quality assurance for what? If the people on site don't know what they're looking at and have no expertise, how can they quality assure something else? And is that, that's a new project you're talking about? Oh, I've been on new projects where they've missed things out, yes. And you've seen things like this not just in hotels and other residential uh, apartment blocks, etc., but also in rest homes? Yeah, I did one, inspected one job um, in South Island. Well, a week before opening, I had to go in the ceiling void and nothing was right and it cost them $120,000 to fix it. The starkest reminder that the stakes involved with building standards are high is the Grenfell Apartment Tower fire in London in June. At least 80 people died in the blaze, linked to combustible cladding attached to the outside of the building as part of refurbishments. Even firefighters racing through the night towards the burning 24-storey tower were shocked at the sheer scale of the disaster. Well, it's tower in inferno, isn't it? Well, How is that possible? It's jumped up all the way along yeah, the flat, look. Closer to home, engineering design flaws played a key part in the CTV building's collapse in Christchurch in the February 2011 quake, which killed 115 people and in the failure of the 12-year-old statistics house in Wellington in last November's earthquake. Both the engineering and workmanship were faulted by inquiries into the Southland Stadium roof collapse of 2010. That case is still tied up in the courts. And of course there's the multitude of leaky homes compromised by the popularising of new types of cladding that weren't weathertight. The faults are easy to find for those who go looking. RNZ News has uncovered many such flaws in investigations over the past two years. We found that poor steel reinforcing mesh was being sold because the testing regime wasn't up to it. We found substandard structural steel bedevilling projects such as the Waikato Expressway. And we found the safety standards for seismic restraints and fire protection are currently being widely ignored. Every risk is magnified when, as now, builders are taking on too much work with too few skilled workers and managers to do it and councils have too few skilled inspectors to check it all. Technological advances only add to the risks. Simon Miller is a Sydney infrastructure consultant who helped write a World Economic Forum report on global construction trends. This work has been picked up by the New Zealand and other governments as a roadmap to change. Well, disruption's coming whether we like it or not. Uh, the real question is how to respond to it. So, for example, there are now Chinese companies that are prefabricating uh, entire skyscrapers, putting them into shipping containers and sending them to different cities around the world. Uh, sooner or later, uh, that trend is going to come to New Zealand. I think this is a trend that can't be resisted. Another irresistible force is the sheer demand. The National Party has made the rate of economic growth and the jobs it creates a core message of its election campaigning. The latest MB forecast suggests the construction boom will now peak not this year, but in 2020, and at a much higher level of $42 billion in spending. 11,000 apprentices are in training, but the industry needs 56,000 new workers by 2020 just to keep up. But every silver lining has its cloud. There's a real concern that the kind of wheels are falling off the wagon. 
That's Connell Townsend, the head of the Property Council of New Zealand. He says it's slightly terrifying that just under half of all builders are aged over 50 and that 90% of building firms have five or fewer employees and so lack resilience. There's a phenomenally high turnover of construction firms. The rate of attrition is so great that over a 10-year period, you sort of only get about a quarter of them will survive. So you'll lose three quarters of construction companies within each decade. When times get really busy, it becomes really quite mad. Boom times almost as dangerous to manage as as bust times, as just the simple pressure of trying to win work when there's so much competition is pretty tough. It's a very unusual kettle of fish. Look, I don't think we're heading for a disaster, but we will be in a disaster unless, as a nation, people kind of understand the importance of this and the efforts that are being made to put it right get you know proper support. It's an Everest of challenges, with many New Zealanders roped together one way or another. The dangers within the construction industry from bad products, practices and processes all leave open the possibility of faulty buildings that could be a threat to public welfare. At the Eastcliff Retirement Village in Tamaki, leaky building problems identified after its launch 12 years ago have now led to the discovery that some fire-rated walls aren't up to scratch and that steel framing and low-bearing walls is missing. The trick for the system is to police the bad without stifling the innovation that creates the good buildings. It's always been this way. During a visit, Richard Foreman, who was in charge of architectural technology at Welltech in Lower Hutt, took me back to the buildings of the past. We're looking at a picture of the, the Palace of Knossos in Crete. That's an example of a, of a building that was destroyed by an earthquake. And they were smart enough to figure out from earlier failures that uh, building stone columns wasn't a particularly good idea. And they actually used timber for their main columns and their structures. They also had some very innovative ideas as well about um, separating the building foundations from the actual ground. And that's where the idea of base isolation originally came from. What about uh, liability? Uh, tell us a story about liability going way back. Well, the first complete building code that we have is from Babylon and from Hammurabi, and that uh, was a very Old Testament approach to liability. If uh, a building failed and it killed the son of the uh, owner, the son of the, the uh, builder would be executed. If it killed a slave, the builder would have to supply the owner of the house with another slave, and so very punitive type um, things, but they were clearly codified. So the Incentives around the liability very, very strong back in the day. Very strong, yeah, yeah. You did it wrong and you are gone. <laughs> Terry Johnson is a specialist in how to restrain pipes, ducts, and ceilings in an earthquake. He spoke at the industry's first full day seminar on this in July, saying New Zealand is getting it wrong, including in cases where it really is a matter of life or death. Now, when the earthquake hit Christchurch, triage was in the car park. You know, these buildings are supposed to be there. The whole regulation, the government has basically said these regulations are there to look after us in times of emergency. We either build hospitals correctly or we invest as a country into a huge fleet of helicopters so we can fly the injured and whatever out of the area to somewhere else. A report into how Christchurch Hospital buildings responded to the 2011 quake shows the big water tanks on top broke, flooding five wards below. 150 patients had to make their way down five flights of stairs by torchlight as the lights had failed. It took them 35 minutes. 
A lawyer, John Goddard, from the Wellington firm Morrison Kent, led a team of other lawyers and engineers who challenged 4,000 repair jobs on homes damaged in the Christchurch quake. He says the very weakest link is the producer statement. These are documents that are signed off, typically by engineers and architects, to say a job is up to scratch. John Goddard says these statements have had zero legal standing since law changes in 2004, but still councils rely on them. Well, in my practice, I've had many, many dealings with engineers, and engineers are professional, they do have professional integrity, but the risk with producer statements is that it gives builders the opportunity to pull the wool over engineers' eyes and over the eyes of local authorities. How do they pull the wool over their eyes? Because... Once a cladding goes on a building or a floor goes down, it's quite possible that defective building work is covered up. There needs to be checks and balances, and there should be a proper paper trail and independent auditing. But that's not part of our system. There's immense pressure on engineers to do what the builders want them to do. The two biggest drivers in the construction industry are time and cost. So quality assurance often gets compromised in those conditions. I think there's a need to really open up the conversation about this to provide protected disclosure protection for engineers, builders, those involved in the construction industry, so that we can get a feel for the size and extent of the problem. John Goddard says at the heart of the problem is the ministry, which has delegated a lot of the hands-on power to local councils it doesn't trust because their resources and intent vary so much. But what to do? The country's building regulatory system is a nettle that is especially large and spiky, and the Ministry's performance branch has been struggling to grasp it. Its Deputy Chief Executive of Building Resources and Markets, Chris Bunny, says they've been incredibly busy reacting to leaky buildings, the 2011 Canterbury Quake Royal Commission, and the structural issues exposed by the November 2016 earthquake. He also admits the performance branch was not in good shape when it was brought into the super ministry in 2012. He says it lacked clout because it was a small department anyway that then lost key staff when it was subsumed into the ministry. More worrying still, an internal review just last year found the building branch was, out of all of MB's 16 different regulatory systems, the one that most desperately needed attention. It's been overhauled now. I asked Chris Bunny why that restructure wasn't done five years ago. It's quite difficult to just wind back to 2012 and uh, yeah, we could have done everything. However, there was quite a bit of pressure on the organisation and the work programme at that time. What we're saying now is that we've taken stock, we've done this in a considered way. We have now, I believe, a uh, structure that will support us to do things properly and uh, the challenge now is to climb into it. So it was... But why is passive fire protection poor nine years ago and still poor today? Uh, There is always room for improvement. We have um, work underway to assess where that improvement can be made and um, we'll take it from there. The restructure kicks in next month. It adds 22 positions at the 85-strong performance branch, including a whole new job of analysing how policies work on the ground and two or three in product assurance. Chris Bunny promises they'll be kicking all of the tyres. Plus, he's talking to the government about how to simplify a regulatory system which he calls too complicated. 
a simpler system is the dream of diverse sectors. Here's the BNZ Bank's Paul Blair speaking to a room full of builders recently. Generally, you guys are earning less and you're taking on more risk, and that's not a good thing for you or for us or for the system. Uh, So the opportunity here in a really small country is to find a way to really lift the whole system up, uh, make it simpler, which is the thing that really, really needs to happen uh, for all of us, because we'll get better quality, we'll get more certainty, and we'll get more done. So here I am on a beautiful Auckland afternoon down at the Wynyard Quarter, a whole host of shining yachts and uh, launches in front of me, standing next to the development side of the Park Hyatt Hotel. It's a similar story to the convention centre where shortages of skills and rising costs are leading to rising risks. In fact, here the developer, Fuwa, well, they've made it clear that it, it is deterring them from going ahead with other developments unless that's fixed. And it's the fix here that points to one way of proceeding that's different from the others, and that is to import what New Zealand needs to overcome the shortages. Here, it's a Chinese developer. Here, they're using a Chinese builder, China State Construction, in a joint venture with Hawkins. They are using some New Zealand-supplied steel. However, there's talk now that in projects in future, the full Chinese supply line could be opened up straight from there to here. When that's talked about, the promises are being made that New Zealand standards and labour laws, for instance, will be fully upheld. But it's untested, it's untried, and for the New Zealand companies looking on, it must make for a very nervous time. A time indeed that is unlike any other if you take seriously the World Economic Forum's report on the future of construction. It says the industry globally is hidebound and has never undergone a major transformation, but that cannot last. Wherever the new technologies have properly permeated this fragmented industry, the outlook is an almost 20% reduction in total life cycle costs of a project, as well as substantial improvements in completion time, quality and safety. Simon Miller of the Boston Consulting Group told a major industry conference in Auckland this month about what's on the way, such as a robot that can lay bricks eight times faster than a tradie. I caught up with Mr Miller during the break. You talked about the quality pressures. Now, one of the things that's happened in mass manufacturing in other sectors is quality continues to go up because you can control it. So once you actually get it inside a factory and once you standardise it, then the quality tends to go up. Uh, First, people had concerns about Japanese automobiles and then they had concerns about Korean cars and now they've got concerns about Chinese cars. But in all of these countries, as they've continued to develop their industries, the quality's gone up. Right, but if I stop you there, you can crash test a car, but you can't crash test a building. It seems that a whole other game when you're talking about construction and quality. There's a lot of poor substandard building work practices and materials going on in this country as in Australia. Are we going to see an improvement in that or not? So you should see an improvement in quality because you can now measure it, you can now model what it's going to look like before you build it. I mean, the big problems you've got in construction are you've got someone sitting in an office drawing on a computer what they think the building will look like, how they think it will perform, uh, what kind of materials they think they'll need for the particular stresses and tolerances of a particular site. And what we're seeing now with digital change 
uh, is you're able to model all of those things beforehand. You're able to then measure them in, in, uh, as you go along so that as the building is actually operational, you're able to see where does it need to be repaired. You're able to maintain it um, and repair it uh, before the problems actually reveal themselves. The litmus test for how quickly the New Zealand industry will adapt is the uptake of this building information modelling system. But it's another cost on top of many for the host of small subcontractors who are struggling already to find and afford skilled workers. Shalidra Percy of Brands says no one can afford to hold out, though the risks are real of importing problems alongside the new technology and exporting jobs at the same time. That's why we're having this conversation as an industry about transformation, because now is the time for us to respond, to create systems and ways of working that can be competitive in New Zealand, provide the same benefit that that kind of construction can provide, but also potentially use that to create a whole new global export market for ourselves. Why sit here and wait for someone else to come in, um, eat uh, eat our lunch, and then potentially leave us with the pain? Why don't we get ahead of the game and actually take that to the world? Which is actually something Mr Miller said, that we have had that sort of mentality, Fortress New Zealand, that won't work? It won't work, no. But technology is, is available to all of us, so let's grab it, let's do it, let's, um, let's make a difference and have some fun on the way. The National Party's infrastructure spokesperson, Stephen Joyce, is one who does appear to be having fun. Because we put out those new procurement rules, that was fine. Some agencies dived on them, others just stood back from them. He tells builders at an industry conference that the current boom is more sustainable than previous ones, which were built on some unstable financing. Stephen Joyce also makes two really big claims. Firstly, about how contractors are getting much better at properly assessing the financial risks of a project. Rather than winning it with a lowball bid, then trying to screw down the subcontractors on price. And secondly, about how the cheapest price approach is losing out to the quest for quality, or what's called whole-of-life building. This approach accounts for the ongoing maintenance and repair costs to the owner of either a good or badly constructed building. I would say there's a much greater understanding of the ability to transfer or not transfer risk and what you end up doing than there was three years ago. I think we've come quite a long way in the last five years in that space and whole of life um, has become the mantra. Connell Townsend of the Property Council is among those who is far from convinced. In fact, he says the race to the bottom is being led from the top. Even around public procurement, you know, we don't adopt a whole-of-life cycle approach to procurement. But what it means is when the government buys or commissions a new building, they tend to get the cheapest price up front and then not worry about the long-term cost. And the attitude is, well, that's not the Treasury rule. You know, it's about the cheapest price... Well, maybe actually a collegial approach to procurement and tendering might be a better way. Some public projects, like the new Christchurch Acute Hospital, are gold-plated. For highway building, the Transport Agency has just brought in tighter rules around steel supply. Other projects, public and private, are not so flash. Here's consultant Peter Diggerholm of Wanaka telling last month's Seismic Restraint Conference about an industry survey he did in 2013. One of the interviews with a ceiling installer says, you know, I've been installing ceilings for 25 years. Get my push and make sure they don't move. But I can honestly say I've never installed a seismic brace. And I looked to his mate and said, he said, me too. I took that up with the main contractor, project manager. He'd been a project manager for 25, 30 years. And he said, 
I don't really know much about seismic restraints. It's, it's for the subbies, and sometimes we put them in, sometimes we don't. So for a typical large project, we're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in cost. And my question is, who's telling the subbies about this? Who's telling the quantities of those who do the budgets? Who's telling the owners? Uh, how does that feed back into the feasibilities? And the project managers, all of the, all of the above. But the engineers knew what would be required if it was done, but no one wanted to name it. No one wanted to talk about the cost. Two big building companies, Fletcher's and Naylor Love, are part of the leadership group set up by brands to push through industry transformation. It's championing quality and collaboration. The irony is that the Specialist Trade Contractors Federation, which represents 60% of subbies, is not in the group, and it's recently been in a public spat with Fletcher's over who's to blame for its cost blowouts. Chris Hunter helps run a medium-sized building company in Strong. I meet him on the Auckland waterfront, around the corner from a super yacht warehouse he's just converted into offices. As you've seen in the uh, in the news of recent times, contractors can take on too much risk. Fletcher, we're talking Fletcher about. would be an example, but there are others as well, and the consequences of that can be very high. I mean, if you've uh, taken on a contract where you've uh, fixed a total cost and then you've got to offload it through the supply chain, if you haven't uh, offloaded that quickly and accurately, it can really blow up in your face. Chris Hunter's company is using some workers brought in from overseas in order to cope. But he's cautious about the understanding across the board of New Zealand's standards and regulations. You need a very high level of skilled management over the top of them. You know, uh, the, the immigrants that we've worked with are actually really good, hard-working uh, individuals, but they're, one, new to our standards and our codes and, and our way of life here. So, you know... It, Doesn't that, though, then point to the actual benefits of a wholesale importation where you don't only import the, if you like, the unskilled labour, you're also importing the management and the specialists, the engineers, over the top of them as well, who are keeping an eye on them, and you've only got to then skill them up, them up on the New Zealand standards. Does it point towards that? Oh, look, I think that's been happening. And, you know, the UK has been a great uh, market for us to get highly skilled people. And, yes, they have to learn the New Zealand ways, but the, there's a lot of similarities. And their moral compass compasses are very strong, so that gives me a lot of faith. Moral compass. As so in, we need, what, moral builders, you think? Well, what I mean by morals is that, um, you know, they're looking to do a quality job. They're not looking to do shortcuts. The recent history of the industry indicates there may well not be enough builders with the morals to focus on a good job rather than the cheapest job or the regulators with the teeth to force them to. Chris Hunter says that people are failing to recognise that when this boom is through, if they've indulged in a lot of poor quality building, it'll come home to roost. But in the meantime, a system weighed down with complexity and divided in its powers allows them to get away with it. It will be a question of time, money and priorities as to whether the twin-pronged attempt at transformation on both the public and private sector levels actually works and the industry delivers the consistently safe and quality buildings the country needs. I'm Phil Pennington and that's Insight for this week. You can share and podcast this and other insights from rnz.co.nz forward slash insight or head to iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
programme was produced by me, Philippa Tolley, with technical production by William Saunders. If you'd like to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insight rnz. It's been great to have you with us. Thanks for listening.